Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime. I'm your host, Mark Locks. Uh, today we're talking to Professor Riaz Hassan about his new book, Suicide Bombings. This is a shortcuts version by Routledge of his longer book, Life as a Weapon. As you'll hear in the interview, uh, Professor Hassan has done a great deal of research on the field of suicide bombing and did so as part of a research grant that he received from the Australian Research Council. I found this book absolutely fascinating. I've done a lot of work on terrorism myself, and I learned an enormous amount from the work that Professor Hassan has done. So without further ado, please enjoy the interview. Welcome to New Books in Terrorism and Organized Crime. I'm Mark Locks, your host, and today we're talking to Professor Riaz Hassan about his book, Suicide Bombings. Hello, Riaz. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks, Mark. That's good. And you're in Singapore at the moment, is that correct? I am, yes. Yes, uh, right. And normally you're at Flinders University in Australia? That's right. I'm an emeritus professor at Flinders. I've been there for close to 37 years. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. Um, just to get started, uh, I suppose if you could just tell us a bit of your own personal history and how you came to actually be writing a book about suicide bombers. No. Uh, my uh, interest in suicide bombing and this topic uh, in general actually is related to my interest in suicide and why people suicide uh, in, in human societies. And I have been working on the study of suicide for almost you know, most of my academic life, which is about 45 years, and published extensively in that, including a, probably the only book on suicide in Australia, uh, Suicide Explained, which, published, which came out about 15 years ago. So I was interested in basically understanding how suicide bombing and suicide in general actually you know, differ. And that's what uh, was the primary motivation or intellectual sort of curiosity that get, got me going. Wonderful, wonderful. And um, you ended up getting an Australian Research Council grant. That's right. I then um, um, applied in 2004 uh, for an Australian Research Grant to study this phenomenon uh, of suicide bombing. At that time, uh, it was really, it was the pre-Iraq period, see, I mean, the Iraq war had just started and uh, and I was um, uh, um, interested in, you know, what has been going on with last, over the last 25 years. And uh, I applied for the grant and I was very fortunate. I received the other uh, successful. Uh, I got a grant for five years, which included a, a professorial fellowship. Uh, and it commenced in 2005, and I began to um, start working on my research project. And then 2005, in July, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the new counterterrorism laws became effective in Australia. 
Right. And, and Day had an influence on your research. That, uh, under the provision of those laws, the contact and the um, uh, treason provisions, you know, they are so broad that you can drive a truck through them. Mm. Basically, half of my research, which involved interviewing a terrorist organization and people who have been incarcerated for attempted suicide bombing and their sponsors, uh, that became illegal. I then sought an interview with the then Attorney General, Mr. Philip Ruddick, to get an exemption. He refused. He said, no, you have to follow the law. And uh, so I just had the option either to abandon the research or continue with it. So I then decided to continue with it. I changed my methodology. Instead of interviewing terrorist organization and the terrorists themselves, uh, those who had been at least arrested or those I could have access to, um, I then uh, changed the focus and I started collecting data from um, by interviewing counter-terrorism police and the journalists. So I must mention, I just go back a little bit, the research had two uh, main sources of data. One was the secondary source, and that uh, secondary source was actually going to come from the published record or published reports on suicide bombing in the last 25 years. And I already had access to uh, a database from Chicago, University of Chicago, and mm-hmm. also from uh, uh, Nuffield College uh, at Oxford. Uh, they, so they, I had some data, access to data, and I was going to update that to 2004 and uh, 2005, and then uh, uh, supplement, uh, complement that research data with primary data, which was uh, which I was going to collect from terrorist organization, and uh, that the part that I had to abandon and uh, change my focus by interviewing terrorism uh, officers, or police, and security people. Uh, account, sorry, counterterrorism security. Uh, uh, establishment <clears throat> and the journalist. So um, basically, the, the, the my research in Australia was the first one to be affected by terrorist, terrorist uh, counterterrorism laws, and uh, at that time, the government did not give me exemption. Right, right. And um, you are actually working at a, a centre for studying. Suicide bombing, is that correct, at Flinders University? No, I actually started the... Oh, you started it, right. I more or less started the search project Mm -hmm. studying suicide bombing because I... Unlike some of the other universities, you know, we don't... Flinders University is, as you know, relatively uh, smaller universities compared to uh, some of the more, I mean, group of eight universities. So... Uh, getting resources to set up a center was very difficult. So, but basically, I research fund, funded my salary and a part-time research assistant. So basically, it was myself and uh, part-time research assistant and the collaboration that I, a uh, group of people that I was uh, basically in touch uh, internationally who have been working in this research on this topic, and also people I was. Uh, meeting in five countries that I chose where 90% of suicide bombing had occurred and uh, and they were by the way Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Afghanistan, 
Iraq and uh, the Palestinian territories and, and Israel. But right. the problem <clears throat> the problem that I encountered, uh, I, I, when I started uh, research, uh, there were 315 suicide attacks globally by the end, until the end of 2003. Now, I assume, based on that, sort of, I said that we're probably looking at another 50 or 60 suicide attacks mm. uh, in in the 2004, and I would then begin to, uh, and probably the same number in 2005, and that's the time when I was going to then start writing my uh, findings. But then Iraq war basically changed yes. the whole uh, global uh, scenario as far as suicide bombing attacks were concerned, and I can give you an example. Uh, between two, eight, 1981 and, and 2003, uh, uh, there were uh, 315 suicide bombing. Hmm. And in Iraq alone, between 2004, uh, starting you know, in May 2003, when the invasion began, to 2007, there were 847 suicide bombing. Wow. So in Iraq alone, uh, there were more suicide bombing, in fact, 300 times more than there were in the whole world in the previous 25 years. Wow. And the result of that was that my research became actually far more extensive and time-consuming than I had anticipated. This is something, if you're doing research, you know, you, you, you don't expect this, this kind of, you know, change to occur. But you just imagine that I, I was looking at into, analyzing 350 or 400 suicide bombing attacks, and I ended up in, in at least analyzing my database close to 1,200 suicide bombing attacks. Wow. That's quite amazing. And it's interesting, you actually start the book talking about the definition of what a suicide bombing is. Yes. Um, because it's, there's not a single, like anything in anything in academia, there's very rarely a single agreed definition. Yes. Well, it, exactly, because you have to define, if you're collecting the data, even well, secondary or primary data, you have to define, uh, obviously, what uh, is the nature of the incident you know, that you are going mm -hmm. to analyze. And as you can see, I have gone through quite, uh, um, uh, you know, I went to great length to describe, you know, phenomenon of suicide bombing. I think basically I started off by saying um, suicide bombing is, is self-destructive humans, you know, um, mm. uh, use their life for um, political purposes. Right. Uh, a political end. Uh, uh, there was a relatively, uh, you know, fairly straightforward definition. And I, as soon as I started research, I found that that was not sufficient. So I then uh, and described in, in some detail, I think there's a whole paragraph which actually describes my definition of suicide bombing because every suicide attack which I then included in my database had to meet the requirements of my definition. Mm. Consequently, um, some databases for the same period would have, uh, for example, RAND Corporation had um, 
fewer suicide bombing than I had. So other, uh, like Start, had more suicide bombing because of the definitional differences. But I'm quite confident that I think my definition is probably closer to at least what I would regard sociologically acceptable a description of the phenomenon. Yes, yes. And uh, do you include the 9-11 attack as a suicide bombing? They are, indeed. I mean, they, yep. they are the, uh, so the, then the issue is whether uh, suicide bombing uh, incidents, uh, when the multiple people are involved, uh, whether, so there are two, two uh, set of variables in mind. There's a suicide bomber, mm-hmm. that individual, and then suicide bombing attacks. Right. So the 9-11 would be an example, which was suicide bombing attacks carried out by multiple suicide bombers. Right. So while they still remain the most lethal suicide, they were only in my database, uh, they are counted as three suicide attacks, but they are the most lethal. Uh, they, uh, the minimum um, uh, number of killed a number of killed, I think the same, 2,988, mm-hmm. the most lethal attacks uh, on, as far as the, uh, yeah. the statistics are concerned. So you're counting each plane as a separate attack? Is that each me? is a separate attack, yes. Although there were 19 suicide bombers involved in four, but one was not, a su- one basically cla- crashed. Mm. Uh, one, one plane crashed, and so the three, basically two in the World Trade Center and one in Pentagon, are counted as uh, a separate incident. So I have three. I've counted them as three. Right, right. And a lot of people around the world would associate um, suicide bombing with Islamic terrorism. Uh, did you find that that is a fairly accurate description, or is it far more widespread than that? I think that's uh, a much more a media construction. Uh, yep. Certainly, um, the, the common uh, uh, discourse on, on suicide bombing is that these are uh, driven by Muslim fundamentalists. Mm. And my research, which more or less confirms, is confirmed by other people like Robert Pape and Diego Gambetta and a number of other people who have been working, there are a handful of us who have been working on this area, mm. that Islam really is, uh, the, the motivating factor is not religion, it's yes. politics. Right. And uh, essentially, it's, uh, uh, if I can just uh, give you my, uh, the summary or synopsis of my sure. findings. Definitely. Suicide bombing. Uh, as a weapon, as a phenomena occurs, uh, is part of endemic, intractable conflicts between state and non-state actors over dispossession, citizenship rights, and occupation. Right. I mean, occupation of a country. Occupation of the country or territory. Yeah. See, it doesn't have to be a separate country, but it could be territory like in Sri Lanka, like uh, a country, for example, in Afghanistan, or, mm-hmm. uh, and then in Palestine. So uh, in Iraq, it was the occupation. So it's dispossession, occupation, uh, and, and citizenship rights. They all intertwine, but they are the three uh, key sort of descriptors. And they're part of endemic, intractable conflict, 
that in other words, there has no, there have, they have been going on and been no resolution. The second stage is that it is state-sponsored violence against the non-state actors. Mm. Is the second stage, and the third stage is with the non-state actors that improvise bo- uh, weapons and 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 retaliate. The suicide bombing occur at the second stage. Endemic yes. conflicts, first endemic conflicts, second one state-sponsored violence against the non against state-sponsored violence, or state-sanctioned violence against non-state actors, and then the response of the non-state actors. In the third stage, the suicide bombings occur. Right, right. And um, religion, religion becomes part of the the whole cocktail of motivation, but it is not the driving force. Okay. I'm actually looking um, in your book at the moment, and there's a very long list of the number of countries that suicide bombings have actually occurred in. Obviously, Iraq's at the top as far as the number of incidents, but um, I think there's over 20 countries listed here, which most people would not be aware that that's the case. Right. Yeah. And... Um, well, they, they were in my database. There were about 1,200 uh, incidents in 29 countries, and but 90% of them have occurred in Iraq, Israel, Palestine, Palestinian territory, yes. Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. Right. And it might be interesting to talk about Sri Lanka because uh, not as many people will be aware of what's happening there and the the rise of suicide bombing with the Tamil Tigers. Well, the. Uh, the, as you, as you probably you know, and um, hopefully most of your uh, listeners will know, that Sri Lanka is an ethnically diverse society, and the two main ethnic groups there are Sinhalese and Tamil. And the Tamils um, have been in Sri Lanka. There are two kinds of Tamil Tamil groups: the so Tamil who have been in Sri Lanka for a long time, for four five hundred years, and then Tamils who were brought in during the colonial occupation, uh, colonization, mm. you know, in order to work on the tree plantations. And until about uh, 1940s, 50s, during the colonial, British colonial period, Tamils were actually, you know, they, they had, um, they were treated, they, they had educational, uh, their educational achievement, participation in the public service and private sector was actually quite, uh, um, significant, and then after the independence, uh, the Sinhalese government, government began to privilege Sinhala language and culture, and that's when the tra- and, and that's equality of citizenship was the main issue. So mm. Tamil began to agitate for equality of citizenship, and they actually started first by protesting. They started the political. Usually, the process always in this conflict the process develops first by agitation you know by protest by mobilization of uh, of people then formation of political parties then election into parliament uh, and when nothing works then the violence begins so mm-hmm. this is the same history in in the in my uh, the book this book we are talking about is the the bridge version of the largest study called Life is a Weapon, The Global Rise of Suicide Bombing. And in that book, there are five countries that I have studied as case studies, and Sri Lanka is one of them. And these five countries are where 90% of suicide bombings have occurred. And so in each 
case, I detail the history of the conflict and how yeah. the conflict began, how it was, and how people mobilized themselves politically, socially, you know, through parliamentary election. But when nothing worked, then the, uh, the conflict began violent. And in the case of Sri Lanka, in the, in the 80s, a Tamil Tiger group emerged in Jaffna, and they began to then respond um, uh, to suicide bombing. The way I have traced the history, the suicide bombing began in, uh, uh, the, in, in the modern period, because I think as I point out in, in my uh, brief introduction, mm. the suicide bombing, uh, suicide missions are, have been part of human history. Yes, and you can actually go back to the Roman period. You can go back to Jewish occupation, uh, the Roman occupation of Jerusalem, and the Israeli sector Sicarii, You know, carried out suicide mission. Mm-hmm. You can go into uh, in the in the twelfth century the uh, in the Shia uh, in the northern Iraq and, and Iran carried out um, uh, the Jewish. They have come to known as uh, assassins. You know, they were the yes. people who carried out for 150 years. And then, of course, in more recent years, we have the kamikaze pilots mm. uh, in Japan. And uh, so there is a long history through, you know, which um, um, in human history, the people have used life in order to, for political purposes, for to, to advance a cause which they believed was right and just. And mm. um, I mean, one doesn't agree with those, you know, with, with that. But that's how they actually saw their cause. And yes. then in the modern period, which begins in 1981, in my research, the suicide bombing began in 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 uh, in, in Lebanon, and Hezbollah were the main uh, perpetrators. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they were picked up uh, as a weapon by Sri Lankan Tamils who then actually refined the suicide vest um, um, as, a, as a weapon. They were responsible, and then they transferred it back to the Middle East. But right. The interesting thing is that uh, while we are talking about it, Hezbollah started it in, 1980, uh, in 1980s, early 80s, 81, and they carried out suicide attacks for about, I think, 10 years, 10, 11 years. Uh, the um, numbers vary, but it is around, but you know, less than 20. I think close to 12 or 13. But once they became an organized army, they had weapons, they have army. They stopped suicide bombing. So, so they they didn't need to use suicide bombing anymore because they were no longer the weaker party in a conflict. You know, they were they actually could fight. So, and that's what Israel found out in 2006 and 7. They, they actually were a fighting army. Now, mm. you take so the as soon as they became became they they had access to weapons and they could fight. The suicide bombing stopped. But right. if you take the on the other side, uh, between 1979 and 1989, the Taliban, are the, what they called Mujahideen, they fought the Russian army, one of the most powerful Russian armies in the world at that time, in Afghanistan. Mm. The Afghan, uh, Russian occupation, the USSR, Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. And in the 10 years they fought, there was not a single suicide bombing mm. against the Soviets. 
But once the Soviets departed and the Americans pulled out and stopped giving resources to these Mujahideen, then they were left on their own. So after, 19, uh, after 1989, you get the rise of suicide bombing because once the party becomes weaker, so in the case of Hezbollah, they were a weaker party, they became strong, and they stopped it. In the hmm. case of Taliban and Mujahideen in Afghanistan, they were a strong party because they were funded by the United States, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia to fight the Russians. Once the Russians left, all the... Uh, uh, resources were withdrawn, and basically now, uh, and then as they became a weaker party after the, after the United States and then U.S. and later again Afghanistan, the suicide bombing began. Right. So it is really um, a weapon they use when there's of no the other week. weapon available. Weapon, yes. weapon of the week. In a, yes. A, weapon of the week in asymmetrical conflicts, political yes. conflicts. Right, right. And what about the suicide bombers themselves? You've got some fascinating information about the psychology of the people who actually carry out the attacks and how how they're actually, um, I don't know if recruited is the right word, but how they're psychologically prepared to actually carry out the attack. Yeah, I think the it, one of the uh, findings on my research is that really, uh, if you're looking for a global explanation of recruitment and motivation, uh, you're probably not going to find one single uh, motivating uh, recruitment, you know, sort of mm. factor. Uh, it, it is determined by the conflict. Right. Uh, in Sri Lanka, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and in uh, Palestine, Palestinian territories, the, there are differences. Yeah. And these differences are attributed, I attribute to the nature of conflict. For example, in Sri Lanka, the, the suicide bombing, uh, the Tamil Tiger was an organized force, and uh, the Black Tigers, the suicide bombers, were the one who actually volunteered to carry out the missions. And they were basically motivated by nationalism and the commitment to the cause, and some people will argue to the leader, uh, Prabhakaran. But um, they, they were young male, uh, mostly, and there were few females as well. And they were selected and then they were trained, but just like the, the armies will train SAS soldiers. Yep. Uh, in the case of uh, uh, Afghanistan, um, the recruitment is uh, not as sophisticated. And uh, there's a whole, the whole range of factors, and I, I think I detailed some in my larger, uh, in the in the larger uh, book, in the in life as a weapon uh, and study, um, and basically, and, and you can see it in in terms of the the outcomes, the lethality of suicide attack, for example, is very high. The number of people killed in a suicide attack globally is about 12, whereas in a non-suicide terrorist attack, the lethality is one. So the mm-hmm. suicide, suicide bombing attack is 12 times more lethal. But yeah. in, in uh, Palestine and in, uh, uh, in Iraq and in, uh, in Sri Lanka, the average was close to between 9 and 12. But in 42% of suicide bombing attack in Afghanistan kill only one person, and that's a suicide bomber. All oh, right. 
so basically uh, it depends on the training motivation and uh, uh, recruitment pattern and I think they they are becoming more sophisticated in Afghanistan now but certainly if you look at uh, uh, Iraq many people who came and became uh, were radicalized uh, and became part of the resistance of the the or what the Iraqi will call insurgents, or what we will call insurgents, they were actually not religious people. Mm. They, were, they were basically uh, um, radicalized by the conflict. And I, uh, there's one instance, there's a small town, Dara, in, uh, in eastern Libya, which is a population, a population of, by I think, few, few, uh, 100,000, 200,000, and it has sent something like 57 uh, people from that little town uh, to Iraq war, and many of them became suicide bombers. These wow. this information comes from the the data that I received from uh, uh, that that became available through the U.S. Army, because they they, they actually it, it uh, insurgent uh, camp was near the Syrian border was was uh, discovered and invaded and and uh, once they found the, the documents they found they actually surprised them they surprised the Americans that so many Libyans were involved mm. in that and part and when I traced some of the people to, back to their hometown they were not really very religious people but they were radicalized and they were infuriated angered uh, humiliated by the American invasion and what they were watching on, on particularly after the uh, Abu Ghraib episode, I think that radicalized a lot of people. And in fact, in my study, I showed that in the, the after Abu after the Abu Ghraib photographs were published in the New Yorker and became a global of a globally viewed, the suicide bombing <clears throat> attacks increased dramatically in Iraq. Mm. And uh, and it was not the religion, but it was the humiliation. And I have a number of uh, factors that I attribute uh, as the uh, motivating factors, as you probably have seen. And I start with uh, uh, basically, um, you know, occupation, that they are not psychologically impaired. Suicide bombing are not psychologically impaired. Uh, they are just as normal as other people are. Uh, from the evidence that we have, uh, it's a strategic weapon used by a weaker party in a in a political conflict. It's not driven. It's driven by politics, not by religion. And the other factors which have profound effect on creating a culture of suicide bombing is humiliation, retaliation, and revenge. And I think finally altruism. On the part of the bomber, on the part of bomber, they mm. basically are doing it because they say, well, if they sacrifice their life, it will deliver uh, a, a, in future a better. Uh, it will receive, it will deliver uh, honor and and uh, better life for, mm. the, for the people who, for for the community. Right, right. So, in a sense, it would be unlikely that somebody living in a democracy, even an imperfect democracy, where they had opportunities to complain, opportunities to take action um, in a political way would not 
look towards suicide bombing as an option? Um, well, the, the, if it's successful. Yes, but right. Sorry. Yes. I mean, if you if you take, for example, the case of if you're looking at the conflict, it's not suicide bombing, but the terrorism. If you take the conflict in uh, in in Great Britain, uh, that so long as the terrorism was confined to Northern Ireland, the Americans when the sorry the British did uh, did not really uh, um, think it fit to really negotiate with IRA. Mm-hmm. As soon as the conflict came to London and to the to the mainland, the British said, "Okay, let's negotiate." I think the the political uh, lesson of that is that uh, suicide bombings tend to be more successful against than carried out against democracy because people can then influence the political outcome through elections, f- forcing the politicians to work out a negotiated settlement. Right. So, uh, but so in democracies, uh, I mean, in the initially, I think some people have argued the suicide bombing are more effective against democratic regime, which actually provide mechanism for citizens to force the government to change policies to work out a compromise. Mm. But then, of course, uh, uh, what happened in Iraq, uh, I mean, you can argue that uh, Iraqis were actually um, uh, carrying, carrying on suicide bombing was to change the public opinion in the United States. So that's a matter of your, your own, uh, in Afghanistan, mm. or in Pakistan, and in Sri Lanka. So one can actually argue that there are skeletons of, there, there are some, uh, uh, the, the basis for this position that political scientists hold, that suicide bombings tend to be more effective against democracies, because democracies uh, provide mechanism for people to force the government to change policies, mm. whereas they're, whereas they're not very effective against dictatorship. I mean, of, um, uh, nobody will dispute that Saddam Hussein was a very brutal dictator, mm. but he certainly did not have, there were no suicide bombing against him. Yes, because there was no way that it would produce an outcome. That's right. Right. But the Americans uh, occupied, and, and of course, and I think the most uh, telling example is, you might remember, the first suicide bombing occurred in in 2000 in, in, in I think 1983 mm. against the in in Beirut against the peacekeepers uh, uh, American American French peacekeepers in the Lebanese civil war. Yes, and and the truck bomb to uh, driven by Hezbollah suicide bombers actually blew up. The, the camp and killed 250, uh, close to 300, mostly American peacekeepers. And President Reagan immediately withdrew the uh, withdrew the um, the whole force. Mm. So it was a very successful outcome as far as the Hezbollah were concerned. And uh, so there 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 is a there, there is this aspect, and of course there is an aspect of humiliation and and uh, retaliation which which goes on. But I think generally speaking, uh, ultimately, the, the, if you want to stop suicide bombing, you have to find the resolution to the conflict which has given rise to it. Mm-hmm. And, and so 
that invariably will uh, lead to some, that resolution will uh, lead to uh, the cessation of suicide bombing. The second thing which can help is this, the breeding ground of suicide bombings are the refugee camps and the treatment of uh, people in, in prisons in these conflict zones. Mm. And if you can actually humanize treatment of prisons, uh, prisoners or insurgents in, in prisons and get rid of or at least reduce the number of people living in, in camps, uh, I think it could have very major impact on the on reducing the number of suicide bombings. Mm. So in Australia at the moment, for example, we've got an ongoing debate about the number of refugees that are being taken by the government through various means. So actually, a greater intake of refugees by countries would contribute towards reducing suicide bombing by reducing the number of people in camps. Is that a long call, or? Well, it's a long call, but I think in, in the, uh, my impression is that uh, many of these people are, uh, of course, they are detained because they have broken the broken Australian law. But mm. certainly, to the extent these refugees are coming in from conflict zone, uh, it would have in the from the sending countries, it would have uh, certainly uh, it would have a, a positive effect in the sense of a reduced conflict. Mm. In right, the region, right. but the other side, we are basically looking at these uh, the, the asylum seeker phenomena as uh, creating security risk, which I think is nonsense because mm. uh, they are fleeing from uh, very uh, uh, conflict-ridden situations, and I think our description of these people as potential terrorists is uh, rather far-fetched, and I think uh, obviously I don't have the information that the security agencies would have, uh, intelligence agencies, but my research shows that uh, the, certainly the, the terrorist risk uh, does not increase just because uh, the refugees come in, in into a country. Yeah. I wouldn't really, in other words, you know, the, I, I wouldn't, uh, terrorism is a crime. Mm. And I think one has to uh, frame it as a crime. And there is absolutely no way to predict that it is um, it's going to go up or down just because we yeah. have more refugees. No, no, no. And really then suicide bombing could occur anywhere in the world then if the right circumstances arise. So there could be disputes, just as we, no one was predicting the disputes that were happening in the Middle East 20 years ago. There could be disputes somewhere else in the world that could also lead to the circumstances that um, promote suicide bombing. Well, I have ma- I've given you the uh, uh, we discussed yeah. the three three preconditions: mm. an endemic conflict over dispossession, yep. occupation, and so and 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 uh, political rights between state and non-state actors. The second stage, when the state begins to sanction or initiate violence against the non-state actors, the weaker party, and then the weaker party responds to it. Yes. So regardless of cultural location, those things could reoccur. Absolutely. Right, right. And are you continuing with the study? Uh, Are you you going to be expanding it in the future? Uh, Well, no, because it's... um, um, I think the resources... um, uh, Ideally, it would be... uh, 
would be desirable that we could build on the work that I have done. Mm. And I actually, I'm, I'm the only one in Australia, to the best of my knowledge, you know, apart from whatever information the ACO and some of the other defense agencies may have. But I'm the mm. only one academic who actually have collected uh, this extensive data. And uh, I would have been happy for uh, for this to become you know, a, a sort of nucleus for ongoing research on the topic, but uh, neither um, uh, none of the agencies that are interested in either the um, this federal government or the defense uh, security agencies have shown much interest right. uh, in doing it. And uh, uh, obviously, you know, if they want to do it, my data is there, and they. Yeah. And I think the best thing is that I know that there is a. A surveillance which is continuing in Australia on just to promote security in, of Australian society, and that uh, surveillance is carried out by uh, the by the Commonwealth government agencies. And but um, they basically, you know, are secretive and and uh, um, what you call intelligence, you know, agents. Mm. They don't want to make these things public. But I think there should be a. a a location, you know, there should be centre for study of. And Macquarie University started it, but they actually just uh, uh, have counter, you know, terrorism. Um, I don't know how effective it is now. I you have to to look into it. But I, I was sort of uh, disappointed that, I, that after all the work that I've done, basically uh, the project ended because I, I I stopped. You know, the ARC grant ended after five years. Right. Neither right. my university, not ARC, was prepared, or anybody else was prepared to uh, either own it or let it go on and develop on it. It's a terrible shame. Have you had any interest from people overseas in the research? Uh, I get requests from a whole range of people from time to time um, uh, for data to access to database, and I was getting that. Even when I was working on my research, the problem is that I'm I'm the I was one of the department research assistant. Mm. Once my grant and grant ended, I just couldn't uh, spend my time servicing requests for providing people access to database and you know a whole range of things that go with it. Uh, I could probably set up a, a research site. That was something I ex I explored, but then. Somebody had to look after that, uh, you know, a website. Yes. So I would put my data on on the web, and uh, I I couldn't find any support for that. So right. what I did, I basically published my data as an appendix to my in my book, Life as a Web. Oh, okay. Yeah. So if anybody wants to have access to my data, they can actually get the book, Life as a Weapon: Global Rise of Suicide Bombing, which was published in 2010, and the last in Appendix A actually contains all the information of suicide attacks uh, on which my book is based. There are 1,200 of them. Wow. That's, well, hopefully somebody does at least pick that up. Uh, well, what are you working on at the moment? Um, what's I'm your now, next? Yeah, my this research project I'm I'm now working on is a, is a South Asian Islam uh, because increasingly the um, the, the general picture we get in the media is that that's Islam is the majority of the people, the majority of the Muslims are Arabs. 
Mm. But actually, there are 1.5 billion, 1.6 billion Muslims as of today in the world, as of end of last year in the world. And 1.2 billion of them live in Asia. Ah. <laughs> and uh, only 300,000 Muslims actually live in the Arab, uh, Arabic Middle East. Wow. So 1.2 billion Muslims actually live in Asia. And of 1.2 billion, uh, five over half a billion live in South Asia. Mm. In other mm. words, one out of three Muslims actually live in South Asia, and the other Asian centers, Southeast Asia, that's mostly Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, and then Central Asia. So yeah. there 25% of in South Asia, 25 in Central Asia, Southeast Asia. So mm. I'm basically looking at the diversity of Islam in South Asia, because this again, the idea that Muslim world is a is a uniform block universe everywhere the mm. same, and uh, that of course is not the case. And this research I'm doing now is extension of my research which I've done before I uh, worked on suicide bombing, which was again funded by Australian Research Council for which I'm very grateful. Um, that research was on, on, on Muslim religiosity, and I studied seven countries, Indonesia, Pakistan, Malaysia, Iran, Turkey, Egypt, and Kazakhstan. Mm. And the two books were published. I published two books, one, Faith Lines, in 2002, which was published by Oxford, and uh, Inside Muslim Minds which was published by Melbourne University Press two years ago, uh, 19, uh, 2008, actually. Mm. And uh, I'm basically now extending it to include uh, just Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, and uh, Afghanistan. All right. Well, I've been reading a book about Afghanistan recently, and the range of different uh, permutations of Islam and just cultural differences in within the Islamic community inside Afghanistan is just astounding. Exactly. It's sort of like the, every century for the last 3,000 years has left a little cultural group in that particular location. Now all of them are Islamic, but they've all carried uh, millennia of history with them to create these different interpretations of what, how they're approaching the religion. Yes. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I think my, the, the general view is that some in the picture, I mean, the, among the West, at, at least in the West, in the general public thinks that the Muslim, it is the Muslim theology which drives uh, the Muslim to behave in a particular way. Mm. And what I'm trying to argue, what I'm what my research in, in fact, it shouldn't come as a surprise to you or any other social scientist that religion is not a dependent, is not an independent variable. It's a dependent variable. In yes. other words, religion is influenced by uh, political, social, and economic environment, broader political, social, economic environment, and then it is influenced by gender, age, class, and education. Mm. And basically, what I'm trying to uh, in, uh, investigate how the broader <coughs> political and social arrangement uh, in these countries influence religious behaviors and religious uh, phenomena, our expression of religiosity, and how then micro variables like gender, age, class, and life cycle influence further uh, how religion is expressed and practiced and and mobilized for public action or private action. <clears throat> right. Absolutely fascinating work. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. 
You have been listening to Professor Riaz Hassan talking about his new book, Suicide Bombings, published by Routledge in 2011. I'm your host, Mark Locks, and I will talk to you again next time on New Books in Terrorism and Organized Crime.